I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Uh, this morning, as we record, the Supreme Court heard its final oral arguments for one of the biggest cases of the term, Trump versus Hawaii a case challenging the latest iteration of President Donald Trump's effort to restrict travel into the United States. Uh, on this podcast, we will discuss the scope of presidential powers, immigration laws, and the interpretation of the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. Joining us to discuss these crucial constitutional questions are two of America's leading scholars of constitutional and immigration law. Josh Blackman is Associate Professor of Law at South Texas College of Law. He blogs at joshblackman.com. He's written dozens of blog posts, editorials, and articles on the Trump versus Hawaii case and is a returning champion for the We the People podcast. Joshua Matz is of counsel at Gupta Wessler and Kaplan and Company. He's the publisher of the Take Care blog. He filed an amicus brief with Robbie Kaplan on behalf of constitutional law scholars in Trump versus Hawaii on behalf of respondents. Josh and Joshua, thank you so much for joining. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you for having us. Josh, let us jump right into the statutory arguments in the Trump and Hawaii case. Congress has passed uh, at least two relevant statutes regulating the president's power to restrict uh, people from immigrating on the basis of nationality. Tell us what they are, uh, whether they conflict, and how the justices seem to be resolving that conflict. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm actually in studio with my good friend Joshua, so it's good good to have this together. Um, the first statute is Section 1182F, and this provision enacted in the 1950s allows the president to suspend entry to aliens or any class of aliens that he deems detrimental to American interests for so long as he shall deem necessary. Um, and this is a statute that's been uh, relied on by Presidents Reagan and Carter in the past to suspend entries of foreign nationals. The second provision that's relevant is Section 1152A1A. And this says that with respect to the issuance of an immigrant visa, that the executive branch shall not uh, discriminate on the basis of nationality as well as place of, place of origin. Um, these are the two relevant statutes. Hawaii, the challenger, argued that, first, President Trump doesn't have the authority to issue this proclamation under Section 1182F because this is of an indefinite duration. It will go on forever. And that he's not made requisite findings to satisfy the detrimentality requirement. Um, Hawaii has also argued that President Trump is violating the second provision because he's restricting the issuance of visas on the basis of where nationals come from, particularly the countries of I Iran, Libya, Somalia, Syria, and Yemen. The government counters that Section 1182F is very broad, and the president's not required to make any specific findings. He, in fact, did. And the government also argues that this policy is not of indefinite duration, that every six months a report will be filed about whether uh, uh, about how it's operating. Uh, with respect to the second provision, the government argues that there's a difference between the issuance of visas and actually entry to the United States. And even if the government uh, can't discriminate on the basis of issuing immigrant visas, it can have the ultimate trump card, no pun intended, of denying entry. Um, these issues did come up at the court today. I was there sitting a few rows away. And uh, the first issue, uh, was this a ban of indefinite duration? At one point, Justice Kennedy remarked that every six months this is reviewed, uh, 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 and that wasn't indefinite. We'll see what the court does there. Um, on the second issue about the statutory ban on immigrant visas, 
there were also several questions about uh, whether, in fact, there's a difference between visas and entry. Um, so there wasn't any big surprise in the statute. Um, I think the, the the Trump administration made the arguments it had to in the statute. And to the extent that the uh, uh, challengers, Hawaii, can prevail, it'll probably have to be on the constitutional claim, on the Establishment Clause claim, and not on the statutory claim. Thanks so much for that extremely succinct and helpful summary of the statutory arguments. Uh, Joshua, uh, do you believe that there is a conflict between the two provisions, uh, between uh, the issuance of a visa and banning entry? And based on the oral arguments, how are the various justices likely to resolve the statutory question? Well, when you say, is there a conflict between the provisions, that sort of points up a, a different issue, which is, one question here is whether the president has appropriately exercised his power under 1182. Um, a different question is whether 1152 forecloses him from issuing an order of this kind. And I think it's fair to say, based on the oral argument, that that argument uh, is unlikely to appeal to a majority of the court. The, the conservative justices joined by Justice Kennedy repeatedly expressed skepticism of core premises of the challenger's argument with respect to both parts of the statute. And uh, I think I share Josh's view that the main action is likely to be on the constitutional grounds. If I could just ask you uh, whether you uh, believe that there is a conflict between the provisions and whether you think that uh, 1152 does ban uh, discrimination on the basis of national origin. Well, by its terms, 1152 bans discrimination on the ba basis of national origin. The, the distinction that the government has drawn in this case is that what the statute prohibits is the denial of visas on that basis. And they want to say, look, there's a difference between denying somebody a visa and allowing them to actually come into the country. Uh, and I have to say that distinction strikes me as exceptionally formalistic. Like, okay, so you can fly into the airport and as long as you don't cross from the part of the airport that's nominally not the United States into the part that is, you know, you can, the government can't deny you a visa. So you have to actually be able to come to the airport, but then they don't have to actually let you into the country. And so the government is drawing a line that I don't think has a lot of common sense. And it is hard to understand why Congress would include this anti-discrimination rule with respect to visas if it didn't believe that the same principle would extend to the consequence of receiving a visa, which is ordinarily that you can enter a country. And so I, I don't think the government's argument is stellar. Uh, but like I said, I also don't think it uh, appears likely to prevail with respect to a majority of the court. Great. Thanks for that. Uh, Josh, you helpfully summarized the various provisions, but tell us now uh, whether you believe that the government's position is correct and that, in fact, there is uh, no conflict between the provisions and that the president is free under the statute to deny entry on the basis of national origin. Um, I do. Uh, so to use an example, imagine someone has a valid visa to enter. And when they show up at the border, the government learns that this person has been associated with terrorism, for example, right? They had a valid visa, but then they learn of a reason why not to admit the person. And they have the ultimate trump card of not allowing entry. Um, I agree that the distinction between entry and visa is formalistic, but there's actually a, a, an important national security problem here where the president has an inherent power to exclude uh, independent of the statute. So I think you have to read the statute to comport with that Article II power uh, uh, over exclusion. And I think this didn't come up with the arguments today, but uh, uh, this will probably be in the background if they try to actually constrain the president's powers under 1182F. Uh, Jeff, if I could jump in just in response to that. Uh, please. You know, I think that's 
Although phrased moderately, that's an incredibly extreme claim to make. And it's a particularly extreme claim to make in a context where Congress has so thoroughly legislated. What Josh is essentially saying is that wholly irrespective of statutory limitations that Congress has placed on the president's power to deny entry, he has some kind of inherent preclusive Article II power uh, to deny entry to anyone who he doesn't believe should be allowed into the country. Uh, and that has never been the law. Uh, it is not the law. And I don't believe any of the justices today expressed interest in tossing aside wholesale a duly enacted act of Congress uh, that reflects a carefully calibrated separation of powers with respect to this important issue. Josh, your response, and then give us what, you know, the, the, the conservative justices were citing uh, a case called Mandel, which required deference to the executive on national security determination. Tell us about how the conservative justices seem likely to respond as well. The power at issue here is not exclusive. It's inherent, and there's a distinction between the two. I think the power over entry is one that Congress and the president share. So I'm not asking to toss out any statutes, rather to read the statute in harmony with what the court recognized in a case called Shaughnessy versus Knopf, a case in the 1950s, where they recognize the president has inherent power over exclusion. Um, but the broader question, right, of how the court should um, address this, uh, 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 President Reagan, President Carter have issued nationwide bans without any fixed duration. In hindsight, we know they ended after a certain time when a given exigency finished, uh, but there was nothing in the face of the orders which re re uh, revisited that. With respect to President Trump's travel ban, this is the most uh, thorough proclamation ever issued under Section 1182F. Uh, so as a result, I think that um, uh, I think that the court will probably not try and do this because ruling on the statute will hamstring not only President Trump, uh, but also uh, 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 ha uh, hamstring future presidents as well. Thank you. Last word on the statutory uh, point, uh, Joshua. I, I think the reality here is that a majority of the court was not interested in, in the plaintiff's argument on the statutory point. What struck me as very interesting is that notwithstanding that fact, which I thought was very clear very early in the argument, uh, the lawyer for Hawaii, Neil Katyal, persisted repeatedly and despite pretty clear invitations from the justices to address the constitutional issue, uh, he persisted in addressing the statutory one. And I think it's worth reflecting on why that might be. It's often the case that the court is reluctant to issue broader constitutional proclamations where it can avoid doing so and where it appears that there is a possibility that they can interpret a statute reasonably uh, to achieve an outcome that they consider appropriate under the circumstances. It seems like uh, Mr. Katyal really was of the view that the statute limits the president's power in the manner that he was describing. There is some considerable support for that position. Uh, but I think that the concerns that Josh identified, which the justices themselves raised repeatedly, or at least the five of conservative of them did, um, and Justice Kagan at one point, uh, are likely to, to lead a majority of the court away from the statutory idea. Great. Well, like Neil Katyal, we're going to delay addressing this constitutional argument for one beat uh, because, uh, Josh, as you tweeted this morning, there is a way to avoid the statutory claim altogether, and that is to hold that it is non-justiciable. Uh, I should say that I'm burying the lead on this podcast. In that same tweet, you noted that in court this morning, Lin-Manuel Miranda signed your pocket constitution. So, so you know. You know, Jeff, this is actually one of the cool parts of being in the Supreme Court. And it's a shame there are no cameras because you always have celebrities come out. So I walk into the court and sitting one row in front of me, I was like, wait a minute, that's Lin-Manuel Miranda. And I'm thinking, huh, 
Now, funny story, uh, Hamilton's actually in Houston tonight where I'm teaching. And the students that got the A-plus uh, on my midterm exams got free tickets to go see Hamilton. I gave them all tickets. So my wow. kids are actually going to see Hamilton tonight uh, in Houston. So I walk over to me, sitting right in front of me, said, you know, Mr. Miranda, would you sign my pocket constitution? And he signed it. I can't tell if this is siempre or semperfi. I can't quite tell. Maybe you can have some, uh, 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 you know, we do know what we do know what Alexander Hamilton's signature looks like. Josh, you know that very well. Uh, but, but this is a somewhat of an unbearable signature. Um, but it was a very, very cool moment. Uh, he was there. He was very engaged in the argument. He was absolutely following along. He was at times nodding his head, and other times shaking his head in disgust. So he was he, he was very keenly aware of the arguments. And uh, uh, I don't know if he's ever been there before, but this was a good case for him to to, to enter the court for. Yeah. And in Josh's tweet, he said, uh, "Isn't it nice to have Hamilton on my side?" And I found myself thinking when I read that, you know, this case does point up this duality, which is Ooh. Hamilton, as construed mm. by Miranda is obviously the embodiment of what immigrants and immigration can do for the country and the importance of uh, a freedom of immigration and treating that population with respect, which I don't think any reasonable person would characterize the Trump administration as having done over the past couple of years. Um, at the same time, Hamilton was one of the earliest and most ferocious advocates of extraordinarily broad presidential power. And so I think in this case, we're seeing in some ways the collision of ideas about a broad president who can do what he do, needs to do to keep the nation safe, um, and also fundamental values of equality and dignity with respect to, to immigrants and religious freedom. Um, and so when Josh tweeted that he had Hamilton on his side, my first thought was probably not, uh, and my second thought was maybe only half. Nicely done. Well of course, done, your Josh. response, Josh, about uh, which Hamilton you think uh, you have on your side uh, you could also tell us how you managed to snag that many Hamilton tickets to give to your students and then maybe finally talk about that ju judicial minimalism argument. <laughs> I don't like throwing away my shot. Um, so I think the short answer is uh, Hamilton had a very strong conception of the executive. He go for a vigorous, energetic executive. I think Joshua mentioned that uh, a, a minute ago. Um, in terms of which Hamilton will we get, I think we're going to get the uh, real Hamilton and not the fake one. Uh, <laughs> I think that the court's going to um, move past the sort of uh, uh, animus arguments that have been raised by Joshua. I actually have a piece on Lawfare that went up a few moments ago. Um, and there might be one easy way for the court to um, duck all of these issues. Um, so traditionally, there's something called the doctrine of a, of a consular non-reviewability. And what that means is if you're denied a visa, for example, at an embassy overseas, tough luck. You can't go to federal court. Um, one of the ironies is here, we're not talking about the denial of a visa. We're talking about an executive branch policy, the proclamation itself. And the courts have said that this is uh, justiciable. And the reason why is that there was a case from, I think, 1993 called Sally versus the Haitian Center. Uh, uh, oh, God, what was the name? Uh, uh, I always forget the name of this one. Oh, sorry. Let me start again. It was a case from 1993, uh, Sally versus Haitian Centers Council Incorporated. And that case served for the proposition that uh, the court was willing to review a proclamation under 1182F. Now, the court didn't actually say it was reviewable, but they actually indeed reviewed it. This was a Stevens opinion, and they found that it was valid. So that opinion has been cited by the lower courts for the proposition that, yes, we can review this. Um, my post on lawfare is a fairly simple argument. They can just overrule that or distinguish it and say that it makes no sense to have a low-level consular official 
have his decision immune from review, but when the president of the United States reviews it, it is subject to review. And the court can say this gets it backwards. Um, you know, there are only two members of the court who are there, and Sally, they're here today, which is Kennedy and Thomas. I don't think Justice Thomas will, will bat too many eyelashes about that one. Uh, we'll see what Justice Kennedy does, but that could be one way the court ducks the uh, ducks the statutory argument altogether. Joshua, uh, what do you think of that? Chief Justice Roberts did ask right up front, is this case uh, justiciable under Sully? Is there a chance that there might be a majority to hold that it's not? No, and I think there are three very fundamental problems with uh, with what Josh just said. The first is that while you know he characterizes this as simple, uh, if it were really that simple, you might think that any justice on the Supreme Court might have thought to mention it at an argument in which it was fully briefed. Uh, but it was only mentioned by a single justice, the chief justice, and only in the context of squarely rejecting exactly what Josh just said. The chief said in that prior case, Saleh, weren't we told that that doctrine should apply and preclude our review? And the solicitor general said, yes. And the chief said, and didn't we review it on the merits anyway? And the SG said, yes. And I think that makes it very clear that the court has previously understood that it has the power uh, to, address, to review these sorts of things and that it is inclined to do so. You know, the underlying point here, though, isn't just about vote counting. Even if five justices agreed with Josh, I would think that he and all of them were wrong. And the reason I would feel that way is it would be an extraordinary claim that in two respects. The first is that I think the nation would find it profoundly unsatisfying if this case were to end without any kind of judicial determination of whether the president broke the law or not. Uh, this is an order that affects millions of people, uh, either directly or indirectly, on a profoundly personal level. Those people believe it to be the case, I think rightly, that the president has exercised the formidable powers of his office primarily on a basis to injure a religion, Islam. And I think the idea that the Supreme Court would simply walk away and so and say, golly, gee, we don't have any capacity to, to assess whether or not he complied with the law in doing that, I think that would be a profoundly unsatisfying outcome. And then the other consideration here is, is a question about uh, whether the court itself would view that as an appropriate thing to do. Uh, think about the implications going forward. What if the president were to issue an order that in fact on its face said that no Muslims could be allowed into the country or that no black people could be enter allowed to enter the country? Uh, the doctrine that Josh is describing is a doctrine that has very few, if any, limitations. Uh, and opening the door to the exercise of that power would be imprudent. You know, usually this is the point where I would make a slippery slope argument, but Donald Trump is a walking slippery slope and you know, here I think we're pretty much at the bottom of it. Uh, and so concerns that a prior court might have worried about as hypothetical possibilities if they open the door to the use of power that way could well be realized uh, in the third or fourth year of a Trump administration. Great. Well, let us now turn, if we may, to the constitutional question. You can respond as you, uh, Josh, you want to have one, one quick beat on the- One uh, sentence. The argument about Saleh is only about statutory claims, not constitutional claims. So claims based on equal protection otherwise would still remain available. Wonderful. Well, it's those claims and those based on the Establishment Clauses that we'll turn to now. The National Constitution Center is offering continuing legal education credits for Select America's town hall programs. You can get credit for in-person events in Philadelphia and on-demand courses online. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash CLE for more information. Now, uh, the government argues that the Travel ban does not violate the Establishment Clause. They cite a case called uh, Mandel from 1972, which says that uh, laws and orders have to be upheld if they risk on a facially legitimate and bona fide 
reason. And in this case, uh, the government argues that rationale precludes looking behind the text of the statute to look at the president's uh, tweets and other uh, extra uh, record statements. So, uh, Josh, tell us why the government argues and why you believe that the travel ban does not violate the Establishment Clause. So the argument here has to rely on President Trump's statements as well as candidate Trump's statements. Um, Neil Cotill admitted that if we were only looking at the four corners of the document, the four corners of the proclamation, this would easily survive constitutional muster. But in fact, we do have these statements. And I, I have to freely concede them. Donald Trump said, quoted, I'm calling for a complete and total shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. And he made similar statements a number of occasions. Um, he made related statements about having territory bans and the like. Um, the government's made an argument that I think is actually persuasive. My friend Joshua will not. That statements made by a private citizen should not bind the statements, I'm sorry, should not bind the policies of the president. That there's an oath of office. There's a opinions from a cabinet. Uh, there's a constitutional transformation. I've described this as almost a constitutional baptism, right, where this now private citizens become president. So I think it's problematic to take, sen uh, take statements and tweets and the like made from the candidate and now impute them to the policy of the executive branch. Um, there are also statements made after the inauguration, which, which would not be subject to that sort of baptism test. Although I think they're far less uh, probative, they're far less indicative of, a, of the sort of animus they need. Um, the way the low courts have done this is tried to connect the statements made in the campaign trail with statements made after inauguration with the policy itself. Uh, there wasn't interest for that in the court today. No one brought up tweets. Neil Katyal did, but another justice has asked about the tweets. Um, and I think the court will likely rely on this case, this Mandel versus, I'm sorry, um, uh, Kleindens versus Mandel case. Uh, from the 1970s and argue that this is basically a rational basis review. We're reviewing the four corners of the document and the four corners just survives. Um, I agree with Josh on one thing. If this is resolved on that basis, people will be angry. People who are convinced that this is based on animus against Muslims will not be satisfied. Um, but often the Supreme Court doesn't give us something that satisfies us. It makes basically everyone angry one way or the other. Thank you for that. Uh, Joshua, very eager for your argument filed in your brief on behalf of constitutional law professors for why you believe the travel ban violates the Establishment Clause. Tell us whether you agree that the whole thing turns on whether we look at the tweets or not. And tell us also why it is that the Establishment Clause applies to immigration decisions affecting people outside the country, uh, given the long history of uh, shameful race and religious-based uh, exemptions in the, in the 19th century. Sure. There's a lot in that question. Uh, let me start with something at, at, the, at the beginning of the country, which is one of the reasons the Establishment Clause was put in the Constitution is that the framers were themselves immigrants who were fleeing a country because of religious persecution. And they recognized, and many of them said explicitly, that one of the great threats to religious freedom in the new nation is if the government could use its power to keep people out on the basis of a desire to prevent that religion from coming into the United States. And so the idea that there should be some dramatic disconnect between the Establishment Clause and the immigration context simply forgets one of the most basic founding principles of our country. And in thinking about how that principle might apply here, the principle, which I think emanates from the Establishment Clause, the Free Exercise Clause, and the Equal Protection Clause, that the president and the government more generally cannot, cannot act on the basis of a desire to denigrate or disapprove or injure a particular religion. Uh, you know, you referred and Josh referred to the president's tweets 
And I have to say there's something, it almost sounds trivializing. Oh, these tweets, they're just these off the cuff things he said because we pretend that Donald Trump isn't a real president and that the things that he says in his office and what he has characterized as official statements are mere tweets that we shouldn't assign any weight to. Um, but it's not just his tweets. It's also his public remarks and those of his senior advisors who have repeatedly and consistently described the reason that the travel ban policy exists by reference to his desire to keep Muslims out because he thinks they don't adjust well and they don't belong here and we're worse off for having them. This goes back, it does, to the earliest days of his campaign. And since taking office, since this supposed baptism that Josh has described, the president has repeatedly incorporated and referred to the statements he made before he took that oath which in my view means that he has assimilated them and they're just as applicable now as they would be otherwise. The president has just made it clear that what he wanted was a policy called a travel ban policy. He wants it to be big. He wants it to be politically incorrect. He wants it to be on the basis of territory to evade legal review. And he wants it to keep Muslims out. And he has now tried multiple times through various executive branch instruments and documents to impose this single policy uh, but every single time he has imposed it, it has it has flown from the same basic motive, which is to make good on his animus-laden campaign promise, which he has continued to adhere to and has reaffirmed since taking office. And I think the least the American people can expect of the president is that he will not exercise the powers we've entrusted to him on the basis of a desire to harm an unpopular religious group. Thank you very much for that. Uh, Josh, eager for your response and also your response to Justice Kagan's uh, tough question to the Solicitor General. Let's say in future time, a president gets elected who's a vehement anti-Semite and says all sorts of terrible things and then asks his staff or cabinet to issue a proclamation uh, excluding uh, people from entering Israel. Uh, give us a sense of whether, uh, why it is that, uh, whether you believe, whether you agree that the Establishment Clause prohibition on religious discrimination does apply to the immigration context, and does it all turn on the tweets uh, or not? Well, I think it's actually not the Establishment Clause that would control the Kagan hypothetical. I think it's the Due Process Clause. And under the Due Process Clause, we can always review policies for what's called minimum rationality. And in such a case, I think you might have a problem with minimum rationality if it, if it was expressly designed to exclude Jews or Muslims, whoever it happens to be. Um, this policy was drafted after a global review. Uh, countries were added. One country, Chad, was on the list. Now it's off the list because it's complying with the policies. I don't think that flunks a sort of minimum rationality review that I think the anti-Israel uh, anti policy uh, probably would. Uh, but I do want to address this question of the, the president standing by these statements. At one point during the arguments, Chief Justice Roberts asked Neil Katyal, what if the president issues a proclamation disavowing his campaign statements? Will that make everything go away? Um, and I think Neil Kotchel said what he had to say. He said, of course, he'll go away. I don't believe that for a second. I think there will still be litigation over it because people say that Trump's apologies are not sincere. I think I'd probably agree with them on that, which really simply raises the same question, right? How should courts go into this world of, of fact-checking the president, trying to compare statements made by Rudy Giuliani and, and Attorney General Mukasey and, and all these other people who advised him? I, I think there, 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 there's a danger here uh, 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 to going down that road. Um, but I, I, I'll concede uh, Trump said these things and, and this, this, this is making it much harder for Trump to get this policy to survive review. Um, during the arguments, this only came out one time from Justice Kennedy who made this analogy. What if you had a person running for mayor and the mayor made all these vituperative comments about whatever invidious discrimination and then the mayor got sworn to office? 
And then to that, uh, the uh, Solicitor General Francisco replied, well, there's an oath of office, there's a constitutional transformation. Uh, maybe you buy that argument, maybe you don't. But here we are with version 3.0 of the policy. There's a fairly rigorous explanation for why uh, most Muslim countries are excluded. Uh, I think this will survive the sort of, the sort of rational basis review required uh, by the Mandel case. Um, look, if this is governed by strict scrutiny, then Trump loses. I will freely admit that, right? If, 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 you, if you put this on the sort of strict scrutiny path that Joshua advances his brief, then Trump loses. Uh, but that's never been the standard, and I don't think it will be the standard going forward. Well, what about that argument, Joshua, that it hasn't been the standard in the past and that the justices may and perhaps should be reluctant to second guess uh, campaign statements and hyperbole by the president and should stick to what Justice Kagan said the reasonable observer would conclude based on the text and the context of the statute? Of course. Well, when you, when you say it hasn't been the standard in the past, the standard has always been that the pre you only look to see if there's a facially bona fide and legitimate reason for the for these immigration determinations. But the word bona fide asks whether there's a bad faith reason. So I don't think there's a change of the standard. The question is whether the standard is met, whether the president acted in a kind of constitutional bad faith here. And you know, Josh's argument has a peculiar quality to it. What he's essentially saying is, imagine a case where you have uniformly and overwhelmingly powerful evidence that the only reason a policy was issued was a desire to harm a religious minority. Imagine a world in which the president has said it repeatedly, although not in the four corners of the order, and in which all of his advisors and spokespeople have said it. They said it during the campaign. They said it after he took office. Even in that world, as long as nobody is dumb enough to actually write in the order itself that we're doing this because we don't like Islam, the order should be upheld. And the reason Josh thinks it should be upheld is because you might imagine some other world in which there's a closer and more difficult case. And so rather than prevent what seems to me like an astonishingly dangerous uh, use of presidential power, one that would fundamentally transform what religious freedom means in this country and how the citizens of this country and indeed of the world uh, experience the idea of religious freedom in America, Josh wants to say, you know what? There's this parade of horribles, so what we should just do is never actually enforce the principle in the first place. Uh, and he gestures to the fact that there was this review by the executive branch, which came up repeatedly at the argument. You know, that, that always, too, struck me as a, tricky, as a tricky idea. What the president is essentially saying is, I may have acted in bad faith, and I am the one who, in fact, told my unelected subordinates, who I appointed and who I can fire, to come up with this policy which as they came up with it, I repeatedly tweeted about and told them what I wanted to happen. And then lo and behold, they came up with something that looks a lot like what I wanted in the first place. But the fact that my unelected subordinates also agreed with it proves that there must not be any bad faith here. And that argument just doesn't track to me. And so I agree that there can be concerns in other cases about when a president has forsworn his bad faith, when discriminatory motive has gone away. These are questions that courts have grappled with before. But this isn't that case. This is the bottom of the slippery slope. And it seems peculiar to say, we're going to allow a core violation of one of the nation's founding principles just because we can imagine other circumstances where it would be a bit trickier to find out evidentiary-wise whether that's actually what occurred. Josh, what about that uh, argument? Joshua says, we all know what's really going on here. The president repeatedly said that he wanted a Muslim ban. He told people to come up with one, and then they came up with one. So uh, is your argument that under what's called rational basis review, which means courts don't look very hard, 
uh, at the real reasons th- th- the court should just uphold it as long as there's some plausible national security uh, rationale? Or are you denying that uh, Joshua's account of what happened uh, really happened? Uh, we can quibble on the facts. I think the uh, Rudy Giuliani story has been actually misinterpreted. I don't think Giuliani was trying to impose a Muslim ban. I think he was trying to protect security with a with a de- with a with a with a ban based on um, certain nations. But uh, that that's not relevant here. The better question is the role of the courts. Um, uh, to be very blunt, in this realm, I think you have to stick with a rational basis standard of review. Um, rational basis often means. The government can make up reasons that are fake and pass constitutional scrutiny. I think that's not a correct review, uh, a, way, a correct way for the courts to review things. But if the government can come forward and put forward a legitimate reason, then I think this is legitimate. I do think it's bona fide on its face. That is something that should survive review. And at one point during the arguments, Justice Kennedy was uh, grilling Neil Cotel by this thing. She would be second guessing the executive branch. Um, in this realm of national security, I think second guessing is not appropriate. Can this lead to the example Josh, uh, Joshua suggests, where you have a virulent bigot or a racist or an anti-Semite making decisions? If that indeed is the case, the remedy is one of politics and not of judicial imposition. Because let's take this slippery slope a little bit further. During the campaign trail, President Trump denigrated virtually every group I can think of. Muslims, blacks, Hispanics, gays, lesbians, transgender people, everyone. If we take this animus argument seriously, the president has now been disabled from acting against entire groups in this country and indeed the world. Now, some of your listeners may say, yay, Josh, that's great. Trump shouldn't be doing things because he's a bigot and a racist. Okay, I'm not going not to argue with him that one. But the courts would then be enabling the, the effective impeachment of a president without an impeachment, that he be disabled from engaging in entire swaths of activity that he'd otherwise be able to. Look no further than the DACA cases. Because, because Trump made comments about Mexicans and, and murderers and rapists and walls and Jorge Ramos and other stuff, he can't rescind DACA. It's a violation of due process for him to rescind the deferred action policy. That's where this jurisprudence leads to. And I never thought we'd get here. But with Trump and the things he said, that's that's a consequence of what will happen if we use this sort of framework. So I think in this case, at least this national security context, the appropriate standard is rational basis. That- Great. Joshua, last uh, comment on the Establishment Clause, and then we'll have closing arguments. Can you tell us what precedent suggests that the Establishment Clause applies in this circumstance to govern uh, categories of, uh, of people trying to enter America, the uh, challengers invoked uh, a case called the Lemon Test, which is much out of favor. So would it be a stretch to apply the Establishment Clause or would it be cleaner to apply what Josh called the Due Process Clause or even the Equal Protection Clause to prohibit religion-based discrimination when it comes to immigration? Well, there isn't a case squarely on point. That's, That's usually true when cases get to the Supreme Court, although the justices labor mightily to make it appear in their opinions as though there's a seamless harmony to the law. Uh, that said, I, I've read many establishment clause cases, and if there's a caveat in any of them that says, you know, we only intend, intend for this to apply in the circumstance of animal sacrifices, or we only intend for this to apply in the circumstance of discriminatory taxation, or this only applies as to local government but not states, or states but not the federal government, uh, then I appear to have missed that caveat. Uh, the establishment clause, by its plain terms, binds the government wherever it acts. 
And it seems peculiar to say that when the government is acting here in a context that does touch immigration and national security and foreign affairs, but also touches a whole lot of people, citizens included, who reside in the United States and have been injured in their own rights to associate uh, with their loved ones and with, and with people whose ideas they wish to hear, it seems peculiar to say that the Constitution uh, and the idea of establishment has no application. Uh, and if, if I may, I would just like to, to pick up on one last point that Josh made. You know, Josh says the president has said hateful things about a lot of groups. And if we take seriously the idea that he can be held accountable for what he says, there might be, I, I'll characterize this as an argument, that there might be too much justice. That, you know, when the president is discriminating against a lot of groups, we have to let him off the hook. But if he had only discriminated against a few groups, maybe it would actually be more okay to hold him accountable because then we wouldn't have to worry about the systemic implications of taking him at his word when he explains why he's using government power to harm people in particular ways. And I have to be honest that I understand there's a concern that courts and that lawyers have over-responded to the Trump presidency and that they're engaged in what Josh has at various times called illegal resistance. Now he's describing it as a shadow impeachment. Uh, I think the opposite is also true which is that some of Trump's defenders uh, in an F, and I'll include Josh in this category since he does defend Trump on, on most legal questions, have been a bit blasé and, and a bit willing to say, oh, well, he's just Trump. That's ju he's just saying crazy things. That's just how he is. Uh, we have to let him off the hook. And they don't treat him like a real grown-up president who's, actual, who's exercising actual Article II power in the Constitution to cause actual harm to real people and who's doing it for actually unconstitutional reasons. And, you know, if the argument is going to be that it's improper to attempt to undermine the Trump presidency, it's equally improper to say that he shouldn't be held accountable for the manner in which he exercises the power that's vested in him. Uh, and that includes holding him accountable for his illegal motives, especially when he broadcasts them on a global stage and thereby ensures that the people who are suffering at the hands of his policies know that the reason they are suffering was a desire by the president to harm them because of who they are and what they believe. Many thanks for that. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this completely fascinating discussion. Josh, the first closing argument is to you, and let's focus on the constitutional question because that seems to be the main area of disagreement on this constitutional podcast. Tell the, we the people listeners why you believe that the president's travel ban does not violate the Constitution. Um. The question of the Constitution is inherently linked to the appropriate standard of review. And I, I hate to keep coming back to it, but I think it makes a big difference. In this sphere, Congress has enacted a number of laws, immigration, that take into consideration religion. For example, there are special visa categories for Jews and evangelical Christians. There are special visa categories for ministers. Um, Notwithstanding this long-standing founding principle Josh uh, cogently describes going back to the time of the founding, um, we have a very long-standing notion that the government can't consider religion in the context of immigration. So I don't think our domestic establishment clause precedents are even relevant. Therefore, under the relevant precedent of Kerry v. Din and the Mandel case, we're looking for facial legitimacy and whether it's bona fide, and I think it passes that test. Um, I think this is a silly policy. I think it hurts people. I think it will inflict harm to lots of people who really shouldn't be uh, subject to this. Uh, but that's not the remedy. We have an election coming up in a few months. If the if the if the House turns, there'll be probably an impeachment proceeding. There'll probably be an actual impeachment proceeding. Uh, there'll probably be oversight investigations. There'll probably be subpoenas in ways we can't even fathom. 
If the Senate flips, I think we'll have a zero confirmations of judges going forward for the next two years. Um, there are political remedies and checks to a president who I think Kagan said out of the box. Is that what you described it as? I think Justice Kagan described it as an out of the box president. That's putting it mildly. Um, but the remedy there is one of politics. Um, I think though the courts though have in recent months been behaving I think in a better fashion. I think the initial blitz in the first year of the Trump administration, I think they stepped out of their bounds. But even now we're seeing opinions that are far more nuanced, that they're not citing the president's tweets as much. They're they're trying to work on, on some more neutral principles of administrative law. I may not agree with those rulings, but I think that they're uh, uh, going in the right direction. And a decision by the Supreme Court to uphold the travel ban, I think, should send a signal to the courts that to turn down the temperature a little bit. And at least, you know, they can still rule against Trump, but the manner in which they rule them, I think, will be a little bit different. Thank you so much for that. Joshua, last word to you. Why do you believe that the travel ban does violate the U.S. Constitution? Well, I think by now it should be pretty clear. I think the bottom line here is that uh, the Constitution matters. It does real work. And Josh is saying, and I, I hear him on this, that the appropriate response to this is political. Uh, but that that has often been what people who ultimately believe the president should be allowed to engage in discrimination say. Uh, the whole theory of the Bill of Rights is to take certain kinds of discrimination off the table. And you know, it's really hard to think of something other than race discrimination that's as high up in that pantheon as religious discrimination. You know, I do think it is helpful to keep some perspective on, wh on what's happening here. Uh, we're talking about the third version of this policy. Um, if we were to go back in time and think about what it would have looked like if the court had upheld it in the in the first 10 days of the Trump administration, you know, I think that would be a very different world. Um, and so when I think about what's at stake in this case, the Supreme Court in some ways has the luxury of having had the lower courts and on a few occasions itself stopping and slowing uh, and reviewing and cajoling with this policy uh, to try to turn it into something that might at least look like something that vaguely fits within the American political and constitutional tradition. Uh, if I'm sure we all recall what the, the feeling of just rampant lawlessness and disorder that attended the issuance of the first policy. Uh, when the Supreme Court looks at it now, all of these underlying principles are still at stake, even if the sense of exigency has faded. Um, but one thing I would emphasize is that the courts have done a tremendous job preventing what I think all of us experienced as an onslaught of lawlessness in that initial rush of the administration. Uh, and you know, we may not feel like that's still with us, but the fact is that this policy was put out there to harm a religious minority. If he can do it to that religious minority, he can do it to plenty of others, and he can do it in other contexts. Uh, and ultimately, what's at stake here is the question of what religious freedom in this country means uh, not just though, not just for those who are in the political majority, as Josh appears to have, have uh, see it, but for those who aren't in the majority but still think the Constitution protects them. Thank you so much, Josh Blackman and Joshua Matz, for a vigorous, respectful, and profound discussion of the biggest constitutional case of the term. Dictionary.com's word of the day is velitation, which means minor dispute or contest. And you have both convinced us that this is no velitation, but indeed a profound and important <laughs> constitutional clash. Josh, Joshua, thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Ogana Etse and Scott Bomboy. 
Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Ugana Etze. The National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, engagement, and passion of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosenberg.